0: This past Wednesday, Ukraine celebrated Independence Day, the anniversary of the date on which, in 1991, what was the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic declared itself the new, free, sovereign state of Ukraine, its capital, now Kiev, no longer Moscow. This past Wednesday was significant for another reason. It was the half-anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine back on February 24th. The coincidence of the two dates has been marked in Kiev with a surreal, grotesque and bleakly witty parody of an Independence Day parade, a stationary procession of some of the thousands of Russian army vehicles destroyed by Ukraine's military or towed away by Ukraine's farmers these last six months. Russia's unprovoked and absurd invasion of Ukraine has been first and foremost a disaster for Ukraine. Ukraine's military and civilian casualties certainly run into the tens of thousands. Several of its cities lie in ruins, and more than 13 million people have been displaced, half of whom have left the country. But this war has also been a disaster for Russia. Western estimates of Russian casualties suggest 80,000 dead or injured, comfortably eclipsing the losses of the Red Army in 10 years in Afghanistan. Six months in, what is the state of play? Will Europe's support for Ukraine hold? And what might the next six months bring? This is The Foreign Desk.
1: I thank everyone who acts in support of Ukraine, in support of freedom, but the war continues. It breaks my heart, hearts of all Ukrainians. That's why I ask you to stand against the war. Come in the name of peace come with Ukrainian symbols to support Ukraine, to support freedom, to
0: support life. Shortly after 4 o'clock this morning, I spoke to President Zelensky of Ukraine to offer the continued support of the UK. Because our worst fears have now come true, President Putin of Russia has unleashed war in our European continent. And I say to the Ukrainians in this moment of agony, we are with you and we are on your side. We will work with them for however long it takes to ensure that the sovereignty and independence of Ukraine is restored.
2: We condemn this barbaric attack and the cynical arguments to justify it. It is President Putin who is bringing war back to Europe. And in these dark hours, the European Union and its people stand by Ukraine and its people.
0: You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined, first of all, from Kiev by Alia Chandra, editor-in-chief of Euromaidan Press. Uh, Alia, I want to start by going back to February, because I think it's quite common for people, when faced with the possibility of something terrible happening, to kind of retreat into a defensive denial. If you think back to February yourself, what was your first understanding that this was actually happening?
2: It was the night of 21st February where you when Putin declared war because I couldn't sleep and another member of our team also couldn't sleep. We were just like on the news tweeting about it and I just heard that Putin declared war. I went and told my husband Putin declared war and he's like what? Because very many in Kiev they did not think that an invasion would happen and a big discussion right now is whether our leadership knew, whether they should have warned us, whether things should have been done differently, whether like... Should everybody have warned Ukraine that on 24th February, Putin will invade? And it was just surreal.
0: Is there a way you can articulate what that actually feels like? I think it's a very hard thing for people who have not faced an invasion of their country or a war in their country to fully comprehend.
2: It's a total destruction of the world that you live in, everything of your entire life before that. I returned to Kiev. And I find things frozen on the day of 24th February. I still have a Christmas tree standing there. I didn't didn't manage to take it down by February. It's still standing here. Right now, I'm just picking up these shards of my pre-war life. You know, like what I was thinking of before the war was how to make my kid learn in school, how to pick up my equipment that I sent to be repaired, things like this. It feels like a universe away. All of these problems that seem to be so extremely important, they really are a universe away. And I'm just marveling at what I was worried about before the invasion.
0: You talked there about returning to Kiev, which you have done recently. You were among the the many millions of Ukrainians who left the country quite early on in the invasion. When and why did you decide to do that? What's the process leading up to the decision where you think, okay, we have to go?
2: Well, on 25th February, there were rumors that Russians will enter Kiev. There were rumors of street battles going on, and we didn't know what would happen. And Basically, I was seven months pregnant. I had two other kids and basically I could not fight. I would just be a liability if I was caught there in the city. So the decision was made for the kids to go. And it was just like fleeing to nowhere, fleeing somewhere away from all of this. And we were extremely lucky. I still have a house to return to. Many people have lost everything. They have lost not only their pre-war lives, they have lost their homes, they have lost their family members, they have lost their health, their limbs. It's just the devastation of this war is growing every day. And unfortunately, I think that the world is not realizing how urgent it is to just end it as quickly as possible. And the only possibility to end it is with the victory of Ukraine.
0: To complete your story, we talked about the decision you made to leave What's the decision process in the other direction? When and why did you decide, okay, we're going home?
2: Well, basically, for me, it was devastating to be outside the country at this time. Because I'm a journalist, I need to be here and report. But it's a process that all Ukrainian refugees face abroad. So they go to another country, then they have to make a whole bunch of things to fit in, to start living, to find their own place, to get their kids enrolled somewhere, to establish some sort of settled life in which they can actually start working. So it all takes time to get settled down. And the longer that they stay, the harder it is for them to go back. So basically, I wanted to come back a lot earlier, but because of the kids being enrolled in schools, kindergartens, etc., we have to wait. But a very important point of this is that the longer these refugees, Ukrainian refugees, stay, the more likely it is that they will stay in those countries. And that is another devastating toll for Ukraine. It is a devastating toll of depopulation, of the most able and skilled population leaving, the young population leaving. The longer the war drags on, the more devastating these population consequences are also.
0: I did want to ask, and I'm interested in your perspective on this as somebody who has seen this conflict from inside Ukraine and from outside Ukraine, what have you made of the impression Ukraine has communicated to itself, to the world these last six months? It has gone from being a country that I think was not widely understood or known about to being the most discussed country on the planet, not only has it fought its war with extraordinary resilience and inventiveness and courage, but it has communicated that with this really quite astonishing sense of humour. Do you think that does reflect what Ukraine is actually like? Is that an authentic representation of the Ukrainian sensibility the world has seen?
2: No, we make lots of puns. Like, our social media, anytime there's a political scandal, for several days it will just be, Memes, caricatures, jokes, like very scathing jokes, very sarcastic jokes. Sometimes they're not very kind. This is really like what Ukrainians are. If you know, there is a very famous painting by Ilya Repin. This is a Russian painter. It is called Zaporizian Cossacks Writing a Letter to the Turkish Sultan. So you have these like very burly Cossack warriors. They're like half naked, and they're all laughing and writing a letter. The letter, it quite expletively, tells the Ottomans he offered them to surrender. And they, in no uncertain terms, but very wisecrackingly, tell him to go f himself. <laughs> this is really a genuine reflection of the Ukrainian humor. And when I was learning in school, it was something that actually bothered me because people were just constantly making fun of things, and I was thinking, this is not, it's not very serious approach. It bothered me, but I see that this is actually. It's a secret to our resilience, I
0: think. What is, do you think, Ukraine's attitude to the support you have received? There's been extraordinary quantities of money and weapons. There's been a lot of diplomatic goodwill, including visits to Kiev by many ministers, prime ministers and presidents and other dignitaries from overseas. What else is it that Ukrainians think you still need?
2: Well, we're very grateful for the public support. Of course, we were just humbled by all of the responses on our Independence Day. But at the same time, I would like to stress a citation by President Biden that we will be with you for as long as it takes. And I think Johnson also said, we will be with you for as long as it takes. But what do you mean takes? Does takes mean as long as you can just, until you, you decide to give up or what? Like, like what is it? I would like to hear, we are here to help you win as soon as possible. Because so far, the aid that we have received, the military equipment, it is not enough to launch a counteroffensive. The only thing that is holding Ukraine back from a counteroffensive is sheer numbers of the equipment that we need to launch one. We are grateful for what we receive, and sometimes we are told it's not. It's not polite to be so demanding, but I truly believe that this war is not only our war. We're stopping fascism, full-blown fascism here. We're fighting a fascist superpower nuclear country that claims to have the second most powerful army in the world with basically ourselves. I think we're doing a service for everybody that we're stopping it here. It is our best men, our best people who are giving their lives to stop this absolute monster maybe you should just hasten it up a little bit so that fewer of our people die. We are fighting for our very own existence here. And for us, it's not a question. And the only question is how many of Ukrainians must die before this totalitarian fascist monster is destroyed.
0: Alia, thank you for joining us. That was the editor-in-chief of Euromaidan Press, Alia Chandra. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Last weekend in Moscow, a car bomb killed Daria Dugina, ardently pro-regime journalist and daughter of influential, fire-breathing nationalist ideologue Alexander Dugin, who may well have been the intended target. It remains to be seen whether this attack on Russia's elite will promote any amount of nervousness in the circle of President Vladimir Putin. Well Joining us from Washington, D.C. is the political scientist, Dr. Marlena Larouel. Marlena is director of the Institute for European, Russian and Eurasian Studies at the George Washington University. And from a location we won't disclose, we're also joined by Anna Nemtsova, the Daily Beast's Moscow correspondent. Uh, Marlena, I'll start with you and with the assassination of Daria Dugina. How significant a moment do you think that was?
3: I think it was a pretty significant moment, not so much because of the Dugin family, but just because you had a terrorist act in Moscow six months after the beginning of the war. So just this idea that the war can also happen among elites in Moscow itself, I think, is the big lessons from the terrorist attack, more than just what is happening to the Dugin family itself.
0: Anna, what have you made of the claim and counterclaim surrounding who might have done it?
1: Well, there are two versions right now. Uh, One is the official version by the Federal Security Service that just in two days claimed they had solved the crime. And they suspect a Ukrainian woman who allegedly crossed together with her 12-year-old daughter from Mariupol by a Mini Cooper. And believe me, under the siege in Mariupol, that beautiful Mini Cooper wouldn't have survived. Many people had questions. Then she murdered, allegedly, Dugin's daughter and left Russia for Estonia. And there is a huge line of cars on the Estonian border. The wait that takes up to 10 hours and more. So people have many questions. But at the same time, an exiled MP, former Russian MP Ilya Ponomaryov, claims that actually the assassination was performed by Russian partisans. The uh, Russian National Republic Army, which involves hundreds of people, and that they set up the bomb under dugin 's car. They wanted to kill Dugin of claims that they killed his daughter and yes, this is a very significant assassination because Alexander Dugin is a philosopher and he 's also an ideologist for Russian conservative elite, and he was the inspiration behind the so-called Russian Spring Movement that started in 2014 from Russia-backed militia taking over Ukrainian administrations and uh, official buildings in Donbas, in Eastern regions of Ukraine.
0: Because Marlene, it goes to a question which I think a lot of people have been asking since it became apparent that this special military operation in Ukraine was not going according to Russia's plan, which is how patient would Russia's elite be, with the war not succeeding as swiftly as it was supposed to, and with the economic consequences of that? Do you get any sense at all of whether Putin's authority has been dented domestically, especially among that elite that he relies upon?
3: Yeah, I think we see some sign of dissatisfaction, but they are coming from the most more radical groups, right? The more conservative groups are quite unhappy with what they see as being a weak position from Dugin and the administration in terms of what was the original goal of the special military operation, which was to take Kiev and to overthrow the Zelensky regime. So you can see even pressure coming from these radical groups, considering that the Russian regime is too weak. You don't really see the other side, which is the more kind of liberal in for whatever liberal means inside the the, the Putin's regime, that elite is partly silent, but the more radical one is quite vocal about the fact that they consider the regime is failing and should be more repressive at home and more offensive in Russia. So we can see these tensions. I don't think it means that the regime is is kind of collapsing. We are not there. But you can see that the war has generated tensions, but paradoxically not from the more liberal side, but for the more more conservative one.
0: Anna, there's another obvious question as well, which is the one about Russian public opinion, which I think actually is two questions. One is... What's your understanding of where Russian public opinion is now about the war? Because even if the casualties attributed to Russian forces have been inflated, they are still considerable. But there's also the subsidiary question, which is how much does Vladimir Putin and the regime around him actually care about Russian public opinion?
1: These are both good questions. Russian opinion very much depends on Russians' understanding of what kind of authorities, what kind of regime there is in the country. Russians are not stupid. They understand perfectly well who is in power and what sort of politics they have. We had so many examples of Russian opposition being eliminated. The leaders were killed, imprisoned. I think that Russians understand where they live and what their future is like. They fear the future, and that's why the social polls shows that more than 30% of Russians are afraid of Vladimir Putin pushing the so-called red button and using nuclear weapons. And 50% of Russians fear that there will be a war with NATO. So that percent of concerned Russians who fear a bigger disaster, much bigger than economic sanctions,
0: is growing. But to the question of how much Vladimir Putin is taking into account, Anna, what Russian public opinion might be, do you think it is a factor in his planning? So Vladimir
1: Putin has a lot on his plate right now. He has to, obviously, probably he's thinking about 2024, the next election when he's going to be reelected. And the analysts I speak with, uh, both in Russia and outside of Russia, cannot see the future for Vladimir Putin in the situation when, okay, the war is over, Vladimir Putin, say, makes a peace deal with Ukraine somehow, and what, pays uh, compensations to Ukrainians, apologizes, nobody believes that. But even if we come to the peace eventually, Vladimir Putin is going to face a very weak economy. The decline now is only 6% that they predict uh, international community for, for next year. And maybe Russia survives right now sanctions better than everybody expected, but still there is a shortage of medicine imported to the country. Already parents complain that their sick children suffer from the domestically made medicine. So there will be many issues, both in industry and education exchange, you know, tourism and more and more complaints, obviously, but once again, The world, probably the Western world, does not understand deeply how Russians see the situation uh, with their eyes. They fear a much bigger disaster, and that is obvious. That's why the public opinion is so terrifying. And no, to answer your question, in short, I don't think Vladimir Putin really cares about these deep, deep concerns in the society.
0: I want to talk a bit about how the next six months might play out, and Marlena, is there a concern that we might see a stepping up of Russia's signature foreign policy meddling, stirring, tension inflaming across Europe? We've seen, I guess, traces of it in Serbia, Kosovo, Republika Srpska, and I'm wondering in particular if we should be worried about the next Italian election, given Russia's documented links with Europe's far right
3: yeah but these links have been really weakened by the war. A lot of european far right leaders had to take step from Russia and are much more careful now in first in supporting Russia in their speeches but also in their just kind of one to one links with russia. so I think that side of the Russian soft power has been really weakened. And as Anna was saying, the regime is really busy busy both in Ukraine and at home. I think it's really far, it's, it's far down in their list of priorities to try to have this kind of influence. And they know that their European counterpart will be super careful in their relationships. So I don't think that's in the plan now or that side of the Russian soft power in Europe is really weakened.
0: Anna, then to go back to the point you were making or the prospect you were raising about perhaps at some point Vladimir Putin trying to think of or proffer some sort of peace settlement, do you think that is likely? Does he now see this as, you know, a winner-takes-all conflict or is it imaginable that he might... Attempt to claim some sort of victory, whether it's the complete annexation of the Donbas, the so called land bridge to Crimea. Could he sell something like that as a victory back home?
1: Well, right now the situation is really dangerous, in fact. The Dugin's daughter assassination is, as I mentioned before, a significant event. And Alexander Dugin, who is probably not as famous in Russia as among the elite, is calling for not just a revenge, he says, but for a total victory in Ukraine, in revenge for his daughter's assassination. So we know what the conservative Russians want, and I agree with my colleague, there will be pressure from that uh, wing and on Putin.
0: Just finally, finally then, the fact that we are now six months into this does inevitably prompt a certain amount of thought about what the next six months might hold if indeed this lasts that long. And um, Marlena, I'll, I'll start with you and I promise I, I won't hold you to any prognostications you might make, but how would you see this developing over the next six months?
3: I think that the fall and the winter will be really critical moments depending if we really have a Ukrainian counter offensive, if that happens, if that can be successful, how Russia will manage that. It will also be very important in winter to see how the European Union is dealing with the energy crisis that kind of weakening the European unity against Russia or not? And so depending how all these elements will be evolving, that will really give us an idea on how the war will evolve and how the end of the war will be imaginable. I think until we pass the fall and the winter, it will be very difficult to imagine because there are too many elements that can be evolving in one side or the other. So it's really critical for all sides now.
0: Anna Nemtsova and Dr. Marlena Larouel, thank you both very much for joining us on The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. If the last six months have been a stern test of Europe's unity and resolve, the next six months are likely to be something else again. Joining us now from Brussels is Suzanne Lynch, author of Politico's Brussels Playbook. Suzanne, let's start by looking back six months or so. How prepared do you think the EU was in February to actually deal with what was about to happen?
4: Yeah, I mean, you are right that there was a sense of a denial that was happening in a lot of European capitals. We've seen recent reporting by the Washington Post last week about the start of the war, where they reiterate that the US was the one warning that an invasion was imminent. And in national capitals, particularly France and Germany, there was a reluctance to really accept that. And no more so than in Ukraine, where You know, up until very close to invasion, Ukraine and Ukrainian citizens were hoping, beyond hope, that this wouldn't happen. In saying that, if I cast my mind back to February 24th, you know, at that night of the invasion that we woke up here in Brussels to the news that Russia had invaded. But even already, there had already been an emergency summit of EU leaders called for that evening. Because earlier in the week, Putin had recognized two separatist regions, for example. So there was a sense that in one sense, the drumbeat of war was there, that they were moving towards some kind of a serious confrontation. But I don't think anyone really believed that this was actually going to happen on European soil at this point.
0: Did you get the sense that the EU sort of surprised itself in a good way with the resolve that it was able to pull together fairly quickly in the early weeks of the conflict? The EU, of course, though it does try to operate on consensus, is not always the most you know, agreeable and collegiate of organisations.
4: Yes, I mean, I think in a way, the EU focused on its strengths, and that's in the area of economics and sanctions. After all, the EU is a huge trading power with Russia. So rather than getting caught up in the debates about arming Ukraine, the EU turned its attention to sanctions. That was their way of outlining their support for Ukraine. So very quickly, and that first meeting on the 24th of February, that big EU summit, and they began to implement sanctions. And what we saw then for over a period of six weeks or so longer, ultimately, the EU incrementally decided to agree a sanction package after sanction package. Things like blocking Russians' access to finance in the EU. It went to everything then to flights, flights stopped between Russia and Europe. And then into kind of the energy sector as well. So it was quite a feat to get 27 countries, all of whom have different relationships with Russia and are more dependent in various stages on Russian exports. So it was quite difficult to get a kind of cohesive response. But ultimately, they managed to hammer out deals and throughout those weeks to get a very significant sanctions package.
0: There was another important European country involved here, of course, if no longer an EU country, which is the United Kingdom. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson put himself very much front and centre of the West's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In fact, I believe he was in Kiev this week celebrating Independence Day with President Volodymyr Zelensky. Did you get the sense that this I guess, common purpose that the UK and the EU now had did anything to smooth relations between them?
4: I'm not sure if it did in the sense that the Brexit angle, the ongoing, lingering, unresolved problems of Brexit are still there and they're not going away anytime soon. And so this Northern Ireland protocol issue is resolved. And I don't frankly think that that did much to help that. It did, I think, underline the Brexiteer argument that, you know, Britain was still going to be an international player, even if it left the EU. But I think a lot of the over and back, the connections between Europe and the European Union and Britain happened in the context of NATO. Britain was always going to be still involved in NATO discussions. It's obviously a member of NATO. So I don't think that really changed things. In saying that, there was more support, I think, for the British position from those Baltic states who appreciated the you know unequivocal line from Boris Johnson on Ukraine, etc. But I do think that they see that separately to the kind of ongoing negotiations that are going on about Brexit, which are the domain of the European Commission and not really national capitals at the moment.
0: The other big development, of course, within Europe's diplomatic and security architecture since Russia invaded Ukraine has been the application to join NATO by Sweden and Finland. Is there any talk within the corridor? Doors of power in Brussels. That that might not be the end of it. That perhaps countries like Austria, the Republic of Ireland, might start to see the wisdom of being NATO members.
4: Yeah, it's a very interesting kind of philosophical question, if you like, for the EU. The EU has 27 members, but up until very recently, until this year, we had a handful of member states—six, in fact—who weren't members of NATO. That has now changed. So for the neutrals, if you like, the loss of Sweden and Finland and NATO, you know, really is an issue for them. Now, the EU treaties do have different provisions built in that give protection to neutral countries. So, for example, in Ireland, there are certain limits to what Ireland can do in terms of getting involved in EU defence, etc. But at the end of the day, ultimately, the Ukraine war has given new life to the suggestions that came up a year ago when the chaotic withdrawal of Afghanistan happened, that the EU was too dependent on other countries, that it needed to have more, as they call it, strategic autonomy, that it needed to have more clout in defense and security. Nothing has proven that more than the war in Ukraine. So I think those neutral countries, Malta, Cyprus, Austria and Ireland are getting quite nervous. You know, the wind is blowing in a different direction now. Look, I don't think there's any sense. There certainly isn't in the Republic of Ireland and in Austria to join NATO at the end of the day even though it did spark debate in these countries and very robust, and some people would say welcome debate, I think there's still no real sign that those countries are going to change their mind. After all, uh, Sweden and Finland were always close, had always more defense capabilities and were always kind of closer to NATO. And obviously because of their geography being so close to Russia, I think it's a, quite a unique decision for those countries To make.
0: This is where we should talk about the future and how this resolve will hold up. Is there any concern within the EU that one or more countries might start to see some advantage in flaking out a bit or might even perceive that they have greater priorities than standing up for Ukraine?
4: Yeah, I think there is a concern now. As I say, the EU did exhaust a lot of its power when it came to sanctions earlier in the year. But there are many calls from some countries for the EU to go further. At the end of the day, a price cap on oil that had been suggested still isn't in place. It will be eventually, but not in place now, they think. But gas, I mean, the dependency on Russian gas has obviously been a huge story for the EU throughout this whole war. And there has been no commitment by the EU to ban Russian gas to, yes, countries are trying to wean themselves off it, but at the end of the day, Russia is still making a lot of money by selling oil and gas into the EU. That hasn't changed. So you've got some of the countries in the East, those Baltics who want more stringent sanctions activity from Brussels, you've others who do not and you're right Hungary is an interesting player here the issue is for sanctions is that you need basically unanimity so some decisions in the European Union you need all 27 members to agree to and Hungary has shown as a limited appetite for further sanctions Bulgaria which has a caretaker government at the moment it hasn't said that it is prepared to restart you know gas relationships with Gazprom So these are worrying signs for the EU as we look into the second half of this year and whether it's prepared to go further.
0: Just finally, how worried do you think EU governments are about whether public opinion in their countries, which, as you correctly pointed out, has been overwhelmingly and quite rightly sympathetic to Ukraine, but how worried are they about that holding up if this winter proves especially dark and cold and expensive?
4: I think there is a concern. And as you say, key issue here is the coming winter. And we've already seen record spot gas prices, for example, throughout August. And we're seeing really a parade of leaders going abroad. We had Schultz in Canada, we had Macron in Algeria this week, trying to find other energy sources, really. So that's the reality for Europe. It's over-dependency on Russian gas, particularly some countries, has been an issue. And now they're frantically trying to reverse that. So yeah, I think there is a worry that there will be some ennui among the European public. However, I think a lot of the anger that we are seeing in terms of the polls towards incumbent governments is to do with cost of living generally and the inflation picture. Now, of course, that is hugely dependent on energy, but it's not just energy. So I think that's where a lot of the focus is going at the moment. Going to be a lot of interest now in how the ECB reacts, with interest rates rises, that kind of thing. So I think that's going to take up a lot of the focus over the next few months. It's going to be the cost of living, bread and butter issues. Yes, the Ukraine war is part of that. But I don't think that that's going to be the focus of people's and consumers' anger over the next few months necessarily.
0: Suzanne Lynch with Politico's Playbook in Brussels. Thank you very much for joining us on The Foreign Desk. That is it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week. And look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk is produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Our editor was Jack Jewers. Thanks also to Nora Hule for managing the sound. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.